This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Cavalry Audio. Ladies and gentlemen, November 24th, 2022, I am Matt Belinsky. This is your weekly dose of sanity, the prevailing narrative, a very special Thanksgiving episode and happy Thanksgiving to you and yours, wherever you may be. We got a couple of great guests on this episode coming up, uh, continuing with the FTX fiasco. So we've discussed what's happened thus far. Now, where do we go from here in terms of pursuing these funds, clawing back funds and making investors whole, at least into, to the point at which we could, the bankruptcy process. We have a specialist. His name is James Katulis. He was critical to retrieving over $3 billion in investor funds from the MF Global Bankruptcy. That was another uh, financial fiasco over a decade ago involving Goldman Sachs, former Goldman Sachs head and former New Jersey Governor John Corzine. Um, super informed guy on these matters, as you can imagine. He's coming up in just a bit. We are also once again joined by our buddy John Levine from the New York Post. Okay, so the Hunter Biden thing. That's the news again this week because CBS, over two years after we all knew that this the contents of the Hunter Biden laptop were valid and the entire thing was was true, uh, CBS decides to come out and say, oh, we've done an, an independent forensic uh, analysis. And yes, we can verify all the contents of the Hunter Biden laptop. This is important. Why? Okay, because despite the Republicans underperforming in the midterms, they still got the House of Representatives, which means that they get to now conduct investigations. They're going to be conducting an investigation into the Hunter Biden laptop. And more importantly, the evidence on there suggesting financial malfeasance and kickbacks to Joe Biden, who is the president of the United States. It's a lot, a ton of evidence on there that points to that. And the Republicans are now going to be able to pursue that. Um, so John is on to discuss and give us a, a lot of really interesting kind of inside info on the circumstances surrounding the New York Post's, you know, uh, uh, acceptance of the Hunter Biden laptop and how they broke that story and what happened with Facebook, Twitter, and essentially the entire mainstream media acting in coordinated fashion to call them liars when they had no basis to do so and trying to shelve the story a week or two before the election in 2020. So that's all coming up in a little bit. But first off, oh, the Elon apocalypse with Twitter. Big news. I mean, we're still in about uh, the first month of his ownership of Twitter. And uh, this was a hefty one this week because he fired lots of people. He let Donald Trump back on. And I'll describe it all in just a second. But before we get into what's transpired over the last week with Twitter, I think people still don't quite understand how significant Elon Musk taking over Twitter and and essentially trying to reconstitute the most important communication, uh, political and corporate communication apparatus in the world, essentially, um, how significant an impact that has or at least has the potential to have. 
So Darren Beatty was a commentator who was early on this. I think back in 2021, he even before Elon was considering buying Twitter, he just postulated. He wrote a piece just, you know, hypothesizing that, listen, if Elon Musk really wants to be a, be a humanitarian, wants to truly do something good for society, the number one thing that he could do that seems w- that would be within reach is to take over Twitter and return it as a free speech platform. So here's how Darren Beatty described it. And yet, as the global public square, Twitter is also the epicenter of narrative formation, a key promotional vehicle for journalists and celebrities, an increasingly critical stage for public diplomacy and hybrid warfare between state powers. It's all of that. Twitter gets to decide which freedom fighters deserve to be heard, which slogans go viral, and which authoritarians and domestic terrorists, quote unquote, need to be suppressed and censored. Twitter's relatively marginal market cap belies the existential threat it would pose to every dominant institution in the United States if it implemented a policy of real unfettered free speech. If Elon Musk bought Twitter and did nothing more than return it to the free speech norms it had 10 years ago, That act alone would constitute a serious national security threat. And when Darren says national security threat, he says that tongue in cheek, meaning just a threat to the reigning regime of the kind of social media, media, you know, NGO industrial complex that has been able, you know, essentially since about 2015 to put a stranglehold on free speech via Twitter and the other social media platforms since they become more censorious. Uh, As he says, this is not to dissuade Musk from purchasing Twitter, just the opposite. In fact, we point this out to demonstrate how bold a move it would be. One of the very few, which, if successful, would be a genuine game changer rather than a fake and performative gesture. Okay, so he didn't make a fake and performative gesture. This was a game changer. He went he went for this. uh, Darren wrote that in 2021. Okay, so he was seeing through the future and he saw that Elon was going to go ahead, purchase Twitter and reconstitute it in his vision. Okay, so very predictively, right off the bat, there's a lot of chaos at Twitter. And that's kind of what happens every time a, a public company is taken private. There's lots of layoffs. There's disruptions in protocols and systems and how things operate, particularly when you have someone coming in saying, hey, I want to totally change the way that business is done here. And there's been lots of rumors and speculation for quite a while now that all of these social media companies are completely bloated, that because they were making money so easily over the course of the last 10 years, that they hired a ton of people who essentially do nothing, that you've got a bunch of people. It's kind of a joke in the tech industry that between Twitter, Facebook, Apple, Netflix, etc. I mean, maybe not so much Netflix and Amazon because it's known that they have very strict standards for, for, you know, and strict oversight on their employees, but that there's a bunch of people working about three, four hours a day and, and making two, you know, 250 to $450,000 a year. And really, these places are going to run generally the same if you cut all those people. And he had to suspect that Elon Musk was suspecting the same. Um, so, sure, uh, there was a, a few things, you know, he had a, full, uh, a few mistakes right off the bat. The Twitter blue rollout with, you know, allowing anyone who wanted to pay eight dollars a month to get a, a, a verification blue check. And that disrupted the ad model because then people were able to, you know, um, one, impersonate other accounts and two, and more importantly, impersonate corporate accounts. And that kind of pissed off some of the advertisers. Some of the advertisers paused their advertising. Listen, there were a few mistakes made, but certainly. Certainly nothing that was near fatal and nothing that they couldn't very easily be fixed. Okay, so Alon comes in terminates half the staff, but then he also sends out an email saying, this company's going into overdrive. We're going to have very strict standards for employment and performance. And if you, anyone who's on board, please send, uh, reply yes to this email. And anyone who's not, hey, here's an offer of three month, a three-month severance and take care and see you later. And we don't need you. Okay. So the deadline for that email and for anyone who wanted to kind of opt into what uh, 
Elon in you know a ham-fisted way termed extremely hardcore Twitter 2.0. If you didn't want to opt in and you instead wanted to take the severance and go deal with the tough job market in tech, your deadline was this last Thursday at 5 p.m. As that point approached, uh, uh, there's kind of a, a massive media wave about how nobody's opting in uh, uh, to Elon's email and you know, essentially the entire staff is, is mutinying against Elon and they're not going to have any engineers to keep the site up and it's a complete disaster and the sky's falling. You had to see the media reaction to this, right? Last Thursday, if you were on Twitter, which is where all the journalists congregate and despite the, where all the journalists congregate now to talk shit about Twitter, we'll get to that in a second. There was a report that Twitter sent out a message to all remaining employees that the offices would be locked. That apparently was supposed to be an indicator of something bad. Well, it was like, no, when you're firing a bunch of people, you want to make sure the office is locked so you can secure company property. I don't know why they tried to frame that as, as a negative. Um, Reuters. Reuters sends out a report, a story that, uh, that the Twitter site is in danger of breaking. And from that, the New York Times repeats that dozens upon dozens of other publications repeat the story that because Elon is so disliked and tried to get all of these employees to opt into his more hardcore Twitter and none of them wanted to, that the site's going to go down. And, you know, essentially it was the Elon apocalypse and it was the end of Twitter. I mean, you had to see this. This was complete utter hysteria. Ben Collins, the NBC misinformation reporter, quote unquote, tweets out, told you so, everyone, exclamation, bye bye, exclamation. Dan Rather, I remember the old saying, better to be thought a fool than to buy Twitter and remove all doubt. The Atlantic magazine posts a story that Twitter is posed to die. As they say, Twitter might be at death's door. Elon Musk seems to be running it into the ground at comical speed. New reporting every day tracks mass layoffs within the company, discontinued features, glitching systems. Predictions range from a partial to a full collapse. 17 on, on that night, on Thursday night, when Elon cut all the staff that didn't opt into that email, 17,000 people joined a Twitter space on Twitter, right? You know what the topic of, of that space was? How Twitter was about to end. Okay. Does nobody see the irony of this? And of course, all the moderators on stage were all super left-leaning liberal journalists who, you know, once had Twitter as their pro their province. Taylor Lorenz, Sarah Young, and essentially nobody understood how ridiculous they looked running a seventeen thousand person audio chat on Twitter and claiming that Twitter was over and it was going to glitch and break any moment. Right? Not even that took down the website. Okay, so the next day, obviously, nothing happened. All these people predicting the end of Twitter, that the site was going to break, that there was going to be all these bugs, the features stopped working, yada, 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 yada. Nothing happened. And of course, a lot of people noticed this and were like, wait a second, we, we were reliably informed that Twitter was dead, that this whole site was breaking, that it was going to be glitching, and none of this occurs. And that's after, if you look at the actual numbers, it turns out that uh, Elon cut about 60% of the Twitter staff. When he when he bought the company, 7,500 total employees, it's now down to 2,700. Okay, so he's cut 60% of the staff, I'm sure a ton of engineers, and there are considerations of, okay, can you strip 60% of the workforce from one of these social media companies and not skip a beat? Does anything go wrong and the answer is not really pretty much the thing where there hasn't been a there hasn't been any mass glitches there hasn't been any problem with bugs the site works fine as dale stark a tech commentator noticed twitter loses 60 percent of its employees and nothing malfunctions everything operates the same mike solana this is so weird because nbc's chief misinformation expert told me the site was shutting down last night another commentator twitter isn't going down you guys just because you can't accept that 75 percent of tech jobs are worthless jim bianco who's another tech and business journalist the fear is the app stops working or or is the real fear that it does not and it sends a powerful message to the rest of Silicon Valley and even all of corporate America about its true staffing needs. 
right? That's what's really going on. You've got all these employees at these companies who consider themselves to be vital. They consider their their jobs to be important, that if you were going to go fire them and all their brilliant buddies, that the site was going to crash, that you couldn't survive without them, okay? And what do you think these stories, all the stories about the chaos, about how everything was falling apart at Twitter and there was a mutiny and nobody was opting into Elon's, Elon's email, who do you think those stories emanated from? They emanated from the employees that were fired or leaving, Okay, because that's how journalism works. Journalists who are scrounging for clickbait, who want any juicy story like Reuters, like the Atlantic, like the New York Times, they get a message from someone who's salty that they got either one fired from Twitter or two didn't opt in because they're pissed off because they don't like Elon Musk and how he wants to operate this. And they give them the cannon fodder. They give them the juicy story that they want and then they regurgitate it. And it's complete bullshit. It's so completely obvious and all these people fell for it. It's ridiculous. And then the next day when nothing happens, when the site completely is working just fine and nothing has changed, they try to ignore it. They try to walk it back. Good old Ben Collins of NBC, the misinformation reporter, he tried to cover his tracks. He tweeted the next day, for what it's worth, I don't think there will be a big apocalyptic day after tomorrow style moment where Twitter ends. The glitches have already piled up. People who have left are predicting outages. But most importantly, it's unclear how the company is going to make money now. The, the glitches have haven't piled up. Okay. It's not glitching. The site's working fine. Okay. The people who left are predicting outages. Yeah. Of course, the people who left who are salty are predicting that things are going to go poorly, but the evidence suggests otherwise. Okay. Actual reality is running completely contrary to your claims and they just won't own up to it. It's insane. As Tim Pool puts it, now that Twitter is completely dead and doesn't exist anymore, I've been having this strange feeling that Twitter isn't dead and still exists. Okay. It's a complete inversion of reality. Total bullshit. Okay, so that was last Thursday and Friday. Okay, I'm sitting here about five days after that, and all the conditions are still the same. There's been perfect continuity. Nothing is going wrong, and the site is still up. And all these people, all these freaking hysterical idiots uh, who screamed and yelped about how the sky is falling and Twitter was dead and they were going to go to Reddit or Mastodon, one, they're still all tweeting, and two, everything they nothing they said came to pass. Okay, it's all just the same. And even further, their hysteria is feeding Twitter. It's helping Twitter's performance because they're whining about it on Twitter. And they don't see the irony of this. They don't see how absurd they look. This guy, Ed Moss on Twitter, he put together a great graphic about how this works. It's like, here's my attempt at explaining how Elon Musk increases daily active users on Twitter. It's kind of a circular flywheel, right? It's like a flywheel is you know, a term in the, the tech world. Um, one, The initial one is Elon tweets some shit. Publishers write about this shit. People visit Twitter to read this shit. People take shots by tweeting at Elon and back to Elon tweets some shit. People don't see that this cycle keeps on repeating itself over and over and is driving interest in Twitter and driving Twitter growth while all these fucking liberal media idiots keep on claiming that the site's about to break. Nobody sees this. Okay, so no. Twitter's not going down. It's not going into bankruptcy, although Elon mentioned that. And if it does go into bankruptcy, it's just going to be that through a normal process of, re, of renegotiating a bunch of debt and some outstanding vendor liabilities and things of that nature, stuff that is completely normal. And then it's going to get out of bankruptcy and continue on its merry path. Anyways, the other big piece of Twitter news this last week was him uh, was Elon reinstating Donald Trump's account, although Donald has not utilized it. And at least for a little while, I doubt that he will, because, you know, from everything I've gathered, he's got an exclusive deal with Truth Social. 
social. He would be breaching that by going to Twitter. And I don't know. We'll see if that's uh, if that's up. I think over the course of the next three, six, nine months, if Donald Trump realizes that his campaign isn't getting the traction that he expected and he's not getting the attention that he expected, I think he's going to try to find some way to weasel back onto Twitter because he knows that that's going to be big news. So Donald Trump not actually utilizing the platform, but his account is back. And of course, the, you know, the inevitable freak out about Elon allowing the uh, Trump's account to get reinstated. Chris Hayes, MSNBC, very predictably, nothing in the world is less surprising and easier to understand than a right wing billionaire purchasing a media entity and immediately trying to use it to pursue his ideological agenda and class interest. How do you, who does Chris Hayes think was running Twitter before? Okay, who does he think was on the board? Who, do, he's, who does he think were the top investors? Think a bunch of poor people. Okay, a bunch of social workers, a bunch of community organizers. No, it was like the Saudi royal family and a bunch of other rich people. Okay, this is just passing the ball from one person who has one set, one rich person who has one set of principles to another rich person who has another set of principles. And Elon's principles are clearly more virtuous and admirable than the people who ran it before. In response, Mike Solana tweeted something that was very accurate once again. Accustomed to total censorship in favor of their narrow worldview, absence of such censorship feels like an attack. But these people aren't upset the platform is right wing. It's because it isn't. They're upset the platform intention is neutrality. That's absolutely the case. Okay. They're not upset. They don't actually think if they were taking a neutral objective view of Twitter now under Elon's reign, it's not that it's a right wing site. It's that they can no longer make it a left wing site. Okay. Under the rules of neutrality, they cannot no longer censor their enemies because they knew that the censorship only went in one direction. And now that it's neutral, it pisses them off. It eats at them that they can't censor their opponents and get up on their high horse and wave their virtue in front of everybody else and drink the tears of the censored. Okay. That's what pisses them off and why they're screaming. But regardless of them screaming and hollering and hooting, they're not going to leave Twitter. They're going to stay on it. They're going to keep giving Elon the engagement. They're going to keep on giving him the eyeballs, just like Stephen King. Uh, Stephen King, unfortunately, turned out to be a total liberal poofter. But anyways, he was criticizing Elon on Twitter. Pretty soon, the only advertiser left on Twitter will be my pillow. Ha ha ha. Got a nice boomer joke. Got 135,000 likes. Okay. And someone responded, headline, Stephen King tweets on Twitter about how much he hates Twitter, simultaneously advertising for Twitter. Elon Musk saw that one and responded, this is awesome because that's exactly what's happening. Okay. So what else is happening in going from a staff of 7,500 to a staff of 2,700? This is not unheard of. In fact, it's like pretty, you know, this, this is usually what happens when someone takes a company private. They fire a lot of people and then they go and rehire. Commentator named Oliver Campbell actually put this really laid it out for everybody and explaining what's going on over there. Oliver says, this is not a discussion of whether e what Elon is doing is right or wrong, just what's happening. Okay. He's engaging in something called whaling and culling. First, the whaling. It's a common refrain that you probably heard at some point or another. 10% of the people do 90% of the work. That's what that tight two-week deadline for Twitter Blue was. Elon was perfectly aware that it was an unrealistic time frame. It was a test. By pushing for such extremely tight deadlines, Elon got to see who is actually doing work and who is resting on their laurels. Okay. So a big chunk of what Elon has been doing thus far is performance evaluation, determining who can actually, who's actually good, who's actually vital and who's not. Okay. So then he cuts the fat. He cuts whoever is not vital or can't live up to the standards. 
As Campbell puts it, Elon was looking for whales at the company, the heavy hitting, actually producing at hardworking people who have been there for a while. When the whales don't have to carry dead weight, they perform like the equivalent of 10 people. Second is the culling part. When you've got 90% of the people who are not performing, they're actually never negatively impacting the 10% who are. And that's why the layoffs happened. Shit is going to change around here and get on board or get out. So by culling unproductive staff, he actually untied the hands of the productive staff. Fewer obstacles are getting in the way of getting things done. It also reveals to him who was there to make Twitter a better place versus who was there to be activist. Okay. So he got to see who aligns, who can do the work and who aligns with his values and who can't do the work and who doesn't align with it. This is all completely normal stuff. And ooh, by the way, now at the Twitter all hands, he mentions that they're hiring in, in engineering and sales. So now he's going to go ahead and hire people that are up to his standards and align with his values. The, the idea that people tried to frame this as chaos, as this was him, you know, uh, stepping on rakes and family. Like, did no one notice this guy become, I'm sorry, he was self-made, go look into it. Did nobody notice this guy become the, the, the richest man ever to live? Do you think that just happens by accident? He obviously knows what he's doing. So this is creative destruction, right? This is creative destruction being implemented by a very talented and sound and shrewd businessman. And of course, there's going to be missteps. Of course, there's going to be some things that go wrong, like the verification process. He even said, we've put that on hold and we're going to come back out with policies and procedures in place to stop the imitators and protect the advertisers. It's not going to be that hard. Okay. And there was another advertiser. If I'm looking for someone who did make very valid, legitimate criticism of of Elon, you know, the new Elon Twitter. Um, there was a, a CMO who, you know, mentioned uh, why he paused uh, his ad spend on Twitter. He said performance has fallen. CPMs and engagement are down. They are concerned about some brand safety issues because they, they have seen some of their advertisements up against content that is salacious, that is vulgar, and they need to. These, these are all incredibly easy problems to solve and that there are some glitches and bugs in the advertiser dashboard and back end and that some of the changes they made to one of their campaigns were not saved. Okay. This is not rocket science, guys. Okay. And Elon has already shown himself to be successful in rocket science. This is going to be easy fixes for him. Okay. You clean out the, the glitches. It's going to go find a hundred incredibly talented engineers after the amount of staff that they cut. Do you know how much they saved on labor costs? You don't think they're going to be able to take 30% of that and go hire good people. So that's all on its way. Okay, so in terms of the ideological component and the principles and values that are going to be informing Elon and informing Twitter while he runs it, um, he's not really making any bones about it. He thinks this was run far too left wing, that this was operated um, at the behest of left wing activists. And I'll give you a little more insight into that in just a second. Um, and that uh, and he wants to make this neutral. OK, and that's what's going to happen. And in making it neutral, as we've seen previously, all the left wing activists who are so used to racking up wins, the fact that they can no longer run the show is going to piss them off to high hell. And here's the thing. They're not going to leave. Okay. Mastodon, Reddit, give me a fucking break. None of these people are leaving Twitter. They're going to keep on plugging away. CBS News decided to pause their Twitter account. They said, we don't trust the, we don't trust the platform now with Elon in charge. You know how long they were able to stay away? One day. 24 hours. That's it. And this is just going to repeat itself over and over and over and over. And just for a little more insight here, here's one of Elon's tweets today that I think is very telling. It, meaning left-wing activism, has been really bad. Far-left San Francisco Berkeley views have been propagated to the world via Twitter. I'm sure this comes as no surprise to anyone watching closely. Twitter is moving rapidly to establish an even playing field. No more thumb on the scale. Amen. Okay. 
still people are underestimating how seismic a shift this is going to be taking this platform from a tool of left-wing activists to a truly neutral platform. Darren Beatty was way ahead of this. He wrote the story back in 2021. He knew the most significant, most impactful thing that anybody can do in American society was Elon Musk buying Twitter. And I think he was 100% right. John McCain once said, whoever controls the oil controls much more than oil and ain't that the truth that was put on display again this week with America having to backtrack on some proclamations and plans uh, that really had ruined its relationship with its longtime ally, Saudi Arabia, and Joe Biden also putting on display his clumsiness in yet another, another direction he took a certain policy that got smacked by reality that he then had to reverse course on. Okay, so what's happening with Saudi Arabia? Saudi Arabia, uh, their current ruler, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, a reformer in many ways, a young guy, but has gotten himself involved in uh, any variety of controversy, particularly in regards to the murder of what claimed to be a journalist for the Washington Post, a guy named Jamal Khashoggi. Okay, so the the this murder has been blamed on the Saudi Arabian royal family. We'll get to the details of what transpired with Khashoggi in just a moment. Um, and essentially, Joe Biden, in in kind of misinterpreting how much leverage he had in dealing with Saudi Arabia and wanting to show himself to be an enforcer of human rights and humanitarian and American values, um, didn't kind of let the Saudi Arabians off the hook for the Khashoggi murder. Okay, he claimed uh, when he took office in 2020 that Saudi Arabia and MBS Mohammed bin Salman should be international pariahs because of the death of Jamal Khashoggi. Well, okay, you can't antagonize uh, an ally of yours like that who controls your most vital resource, which is oil, that has been the basis of a special relationship between the two the two nations for about a hundred years now. Okay, I know it'd be nice. I know in fantasy land with unicorns and leprechauns and whatnot. You can go and insult all our allies um, and and pretend that, you know, when they get their hands dirty and international affairs or mishaps occur, even ones that could you could theoretically ascribe blame to them for. You can't go ahead and antagonize them because they control the oil. OK, and that's become an important and that's become a, a very harmful concern for us, given the Russia situation, because Russia is no longer able to say what well, we've decided that Russia is not going to be supplying us more, much oil anymore. So we need to rely on the Saudis and Joe Biden and his administration. We're woken up to that reality very recently okay so uh what jamal just real quick what he did was that jamal khashoggi's uh fiance is filing a civil lawsuit against uh the saudi arabian royal family and mbs in the united states essentially this week uh the biden administration uh granted mbs uh, civil immunity so he can't be sued for that okay and we had to go ahead and kiss his ass after we had said that he was supposed to be a, a pariah and tarnished our relationship with saudi arabia all right so let's backtrack a little bit jamal khashoggi who is this gentleman um he rose to prominence or at least you know professionally back in the 80s when he was uh, uh kind of went and fought or at least reported alongside a guy named Osama bin Laden um, fighting on the on the side of the Mujahideen on behalf of Afghanistan against the Soviet Union um, in opposing the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan back in the 80s. And I'm and, uh, sorry, Khashoggi became very close with Osama bin Laden. And at the time, you, I guess, could justify that, seemed to be a man of God, a, a freedom fighter, and was opposing the godless invading force of the Soviet Union. The Americans, cert we certainly uh, didn't find any reason to you know, uh, to not throw a lot in with Osama bin Laden. We funded him. We gave him weapons. 
a righteous cause at that time. Fair enough. Um, but Jamal Khashoggi um, stayed very close to Osama bin Laden and the Mujahideen and, you know, and what eventually became Al-Qaeda. He was not a member of Al-Qaeda. And, and, you know, I guess maybe we can grant him some leniency in his relationship with Osama bin Laden. Um, the two seemed to drift apart. Um, he did, uh, uh, Khashoggi did report once again. Uh, essentially what happened here, uh, bin Laden after he defeated the Russians, bin Laden wanted the Saudi Arabian royal family to use him as their, as essentially an international or, or a localized uh, Mujahideen Jihad protective force. But instead, the Saudi Arabians went with the Americans because obviously we had more to offer. We were paying them. There was a, a prosperous financial relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia. And that pissed off Osama bin Laden. And that's kind of what initially turned him against the United States. Anyway, so he also became an enemy of the Saudis. Um, apparently, Khashoggi you know, tried to to persuade him. Otherwise, Khashoggi was an advisor to the Saudi Arabian royal family during the 80s and 90s, tried to mend the rift between uh, bin Laden and the Saudis, did not work. And apparently as time went on and uh, bin Laden became more violent, Khashoggi reluctantly turned on bin Laden and, you know, wanted him to disavow violence, but he wouldn't. When bin Laden was killed in 2011, Khashoggi admitted to crying and said that he wished that his friend had turned, had, had not taken a violent path, but that just gives you a little, uh, a little familiarity and a little flavor for where Jamal Khashoggi has been. Okay. So as I said, he was an advisor to the Saudi Arabian Royal family through the eighties, nineties and two thousands. Um, he fell out of favor with the Saudi Arabian royal family, I believe it was in 2017, became very critical of the Saudis. And he was in the United States at that point, uh, writing for the Washington writing for the Washington Post. And he was writing a lot of pieces in the Washington Post, very critical of the Saudi Arabian royal family and government. And uh, he was living in Turkey, predominantly he was living uh, between Turkey and the United States at the time. 2018, he goes to the Turkish, em to, sorry, to the Saudi Arabian embassy in Istanbul to get proof of his divorce from Saudi Arabia because he wanted to, to marry his then Turkish fiance. Did not go very well for him. Apparently, he was detained there. Um, he did not come out alive. There was questions initially over what transpired the saudi arabians you know denied that they even knew what happened to him and then as it turns out um his body was uh, essentially chopped up into little pieces and disposed of um the claim or at least the the claim by the saudis was that yes there was an attempt to detain him um, but it was not a premeditated murder that the that MBS and the royal family had not authorized uh, him to be attacked or murdered. They just authorized him to be detained. And then in the struggle to detain him, he fought back and he was murdered in that struggle. Um, difficult to take them for their word, but we don't have any evidence to the contrary. And they did punish some people. OK, 11 people were arrested and convicted in Jamal Khashoggi's murder in Saudi Arabia, five of them getting the death penalty and the rest of them getting pres uh, prison for life. Nevertheless, this was and despite uh, Saudi Arabia's uh, extensive relationship with the United States, the fact that MBS was westernizing to a certain extent, granting certain rights to women, wanting to, you know, have uh, uh, the Saudi Arabian Sovereign Wealth Fund fund more American private companies and expand the relationship beyond just oil. The media went after him and essentially wanted to you know, make him a pariah over the death of Khashoggi and claim that there was no way that he didn't order it. Uh, it's also seemed to be somewhat driven by MBS's relationship with Trump because Trump very shrewdly 
strategically um, got very close to MBS. He realized, okay, this is a powerful ally of us, uh, uh, ally of ours. This is a new ruler who wants to westernize, wants to become even you know friendlier with the West and friendlier with Israel. And then they use the uh, uh, Israeli-Saudi Arabian relationship as a counterweight to Iran in the Middle East. He figured, okay, it's better to strengthen our ties here. But you know, I'd say a good portion of the media um, the media opposition to MBS was based on his relationship with Trump and the Jamal Khashoggi murder gave them the avenue, gave them the vector to tarnish or criticize this relationship. So anyways, Joe Biden plays right into that. And when he comes uh, when he, he's elected in 2020, he says that, you know, uh, MBS should be a pariah and wants to cut off ties with Saudi Arabia. And I mean, I, I'm could you imagine in, in what realm of the galaxy he thinks this would be a positive thing? That he thinks that he can treat an ally and someone who's, you know, one of, at, depending on the week, one of our top three sources of oil, uh, uh, that he can treat them like this. Like, was that shrewd? Was there any strategic, was there any strategic thought put into that whatsoever? And of course, that backfires because about a year into Joe Biden's presidency, Russia invades the Ukraine. We, uh, we detach economically from Russia. Price of oil shoots through the roof. And who do we have to go to? We have to go back hat in hand to the Saudis to ask them to up, you know, up oil production via OPEC. And of course, they don't want to because they don't want to do us any favors at this point. OK, why? Because we spit we spit in their face because we caught we said that we wanted to make their ruler a pariah and make them a pariah. And this was uh, was this unexpected. OK, this is most obvious. Uh, it, it, Stevie Wonder could have seen that this was going to happen. The Wall Street Journal actually did a very comprehensive piece on this back in October after Saudi Arabia refused to increase oil production at Joe Biden's request. It says uh, U.S.-Saudi relationships buckle driven by animosity between Biden and Mohammed bin Salman. Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the kingdom's 37-year-old day-to-day ruler, mocks President Biden in private, making fun of the 79-year-old's gaffes and questioning his mental acuity, according to people within the Saudi government. He has told advisors he hasn't been impressed with Mr. Biden since his days as vice president and much preferred former President Donald Trump, the people said. Mr. Biden said on the campaign trail in 2020 that he saw a very little social redeeming value in the present government in Saudi Arabia. Well, what, what benefit uh, is there to saying that? Because you ain't changing it, Joe, okay? And that's why you had to go buckle to them this week and grant some immunity because you know that we need Saudi Arabia just as much, if not more, as they need us. So all your preening, all your grandstanding uh, about how you don't like MBS and about how you think they should be a pariah for the Khashoggi murder just to satisfy you know, your buddies in the media and the activists, that just completely backfired and made you look stupid. So the Wall Street Journal goes on. Geopolitical and economic forces have been driving wedges into the relationship between America and Saudi Arabia for years. But the enmity between Mr. Biden and Prince Mohammed has deepened the tension and is only likely to get messier. Rarely has the chain of broken expectations and perceived insults and humiliation and humiliations been greater than they are now. The decision by Saudi-led OPEC to cut oil production, thereby raising crude prices at a time of high inflation just before an American election and despite U.S. pleas to hold off, has cemented both leaders' resolve to reconsider a strategic relationship that has underpinned the global economy and Middle East geopolitics for almost 80 years with once unthinkable retaliatory measures now on the table. Okay, so Joe Biden decided to go pick a fight with Saudi Arabia. Just when they were westernizing, just when they were warming up to Israel, okay, and just when we needed them even more as a uh, as an oil supplier in response to uh, uh, the situation in Russia, okay, to keep gas under seven freaking dollars a gallon in this country. How uh, uh, indescribably stupid was that? Okay, I guess he eventually woke up to this. He woke up to reality that they've got us by the balls because he had to go back and kiss MBS's ass. He had to go grant him civil immunity this this week and essentially walk back everything he said about what America's proper response should be 
over the Khashoggi murder, which, while tragic, was not significant enough to tarnish this entire relationship. He had to walk it all back. Okay, and this was just this situation is just so evident. It's a perfect case study of the failures of Joe Biden and Joe Biden and Joe Biden's administration. Just completely ineffective, thoughtless, and, and living off in la la land, based more on these delusions of satisfying the media and activist class than based on objective reality. And this happens over and over and over again. So listen, you'll you'll see some people get a little more conspiratorial about this stuff because of Khashoggi's past and the circumstances under which he was murdered. Um, but you know, I don't know. I've done you. You've got some pretty some pretty credible people like Peter Bergen who insist that listen, sure, this guy had a relationship with Bin Laden, but it emanated out of the same thing, the, the same war, and the same circumstances where America was supportive of Bin Laden, meaning the uh, the Mujahideen battling the Soviet Union back in the 1980s. Um, so it is a fascinating situation, just the history of it and the characters involved here. Um, but yeah, you know, maybe we'll get some relief on gas prices now that we've had to go back hat in hand. Maybe in LA you'll see sub five dollar gas once again one of these days. Possibly now that we've had to go buckle, it further ruins America's world standing. It contaminates our relationships in the Middle East. That where a lot of things had been going well. Say what you want about Donald Trump in the Middle East, things were going well. You had Saudi Arabia warming up to Israel forming an alliance and a very powerful strategic counter to Iran. So can that be maintained? Can we revive that? And can we get gas back to any semblance of a reasonable level? We shall see and hopefully sooner rather than later. But yes, another Joe Biden, just absolute face plant. And now we had to go back hat in hand to the Saudis, but not at all surprising given the strategic acumen or lack of acumen from this administration. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So everybody, the FTX fiasco, we have discussed what transpired, at least in as much depth as we, we can on this podcast previously. But now the question comes to where do we go from here? Because we have a lot of customers who made deposits with FTX, tried to retrieve them and were unable to. There's a lot of money missing and you've got a company that now appears to be in a bankruptcy process. Uh, the United States bankruptcy courts, not particularly familiar or experienced in dealing with this this area of, uh, of a financial implosion with cryptocurrency. Now we have one gentleman here with us today who is in uniquely familiar with this process and retrieving customer funds from financial shenanigans. His name is James Katulis, and he rose to prominence uh, in 2011 as a 31-year-old wonderkind lawyer turned commodities trader who fought and won for more than $6 billion in customers who were burned by the MF Global scandal. James, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. 
Um, maybe we could get started with kind of a retrospective on that MF Global scandal and and what happened there. And also, you know, because people frame this uh, all financial uh, malfeasance these days within the scope of Bernie Madoff, people may not be aware that Bernie Madoff, uh, the, the people got burned by the Bernie Madoff scandal, actually ended up retrieving quite a few funds. So maybe we can get a little background on how these processes have gone when they've been successful. Sure. Yeah. So uh, I started my hedge fund, Typhon Capital Management, on my credit cards in the financial crisis in 2008. Uh, we specialize in, in listed derivatives trading, so like futures and options. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we we're doing pretty well. We've been up to like 55 million in assets under management. And lo and behold, this guy, John Corzine, who was the uh, um, former CEO of Goldman, governor and senator from New Jersey, and one of Obama's biggest donors, decided he was going to take $1.6 billion out of his customer segregated trust accounts and use that to make margin calls on his own personal trading that the customers didn't stand a benefit oh, from. So we as a firm, two of our bigger customers had chosen to clear their separately managed accounts at MF Global. Um, I am a lawyer and was a lawyer. I'd never worked in a law firm. Uh, my experience at the time was an $8,000 uh, collections case for my golf pro. Um, never taken a class in bankruptcy. And, uh, um, you know, I did volunteer at the Northwestern Law Investor Protection Center, where I was their consulting expert on futures and still am, actually. Um, but I called up the head of the clinic, this guy, Sam Tenenbaum, who's like a gruff old litigator. And he's like, Jimmy, file an emergency motion. Uh, ask for your clients to get 90% of their money back, right? So I did that. I was one of the first people to do anything. Um, in the case, and before you know it, on the front page of the New York Times, excuse me, business section in a black trench coat looking scary um, in front of actually t- Trump Tower, which you can't quite see in the, the background, but it was like right behind me, ironically. But um, anyway, that picture resulted in over a thousand people uh, a day calling me, asking for help. Uh, back then, our firm was just me, my 23-year-old little sister with an advertising degree, uh, and a farmer who traded agriculture commodities for us, by Jared Lehman, who's still with us 12 years later. Um, and then one of the guys who called was this guy, John Rowe, uh, who was a commodity broker, used to work at MF. His dad, uh, at the time, was the only member of Congress wow. who didn't take PAC money. Uh, we're now retired Congressman Phil, Phil Rowe, very honorable guy. Uh, but John is like, I'm coming to your office. We need to tell the American people why this is such a big deal. So we wrote a white paper um, explaining that you had major American businesses like Coca-Cola, Southwest Airlines, mm-hmm. Coke Industries, Charles Schwab, all victims of this, along with farmers, ranchers, almost every independent farm in the U.S. would use MF Global to hedge their, their crops, to buy seed. Um, and there was actually a drought that next year. So it could have been a, a real major you know, food crisis had we not you know, fixed things. But basically... Me, John, and Diana started a nonprofit, the Commodity Customer Coalition, raised like $176,000 in donations. And with that, we litigated the eighth biggest bankruptcy in U.S. history, Mm -hmm. pro bono. Uh, The two trustees against us, one was the trustee from Lehman Brothers, the biggest bankruptcy ever. The other was Clinton's FBI director, Louis Freed. Um, Those two trustees billed over $2.4 billion in fees. Wow. And so when you say that the trustees were against you, could you describe the dynamic with you being adverse to the trustees and vice versa? Yeah. So ostensibly, a trustee's job is to collect assets for customers. And I will say uh, James Gidden, who was the Lehman trustee and the the trustee of the broker-dealer case, wound up actually working together with us. Um, At the beginning, 
you know, his process was like customers would never see a dollar for nine months. Even then it would be only 60 cents on a dollar. And basically he was positioning it to be like Lehman, which is still going on from 2008, like 14 wow. years later. Right. And it's just this fee machine, you know, for the bankruptcy court, you know, so the trustee mm-hmm. was building a quote discounted $891 an hour personally, but then every call you have like 20 lawyers on, you have service providers, professionals, right? It's just like a meter running. And in bankruptcy, if you have a situation where you have um, not enough assets to go around for everybody, you know, you're going to spend $5 for every $1 customer assets litigating it and fighting over it, right? So like our goal um, was to make the thing move as quickly as possible, get as much money out to customers, um, you know, as possible. And, and we were successful in redesigning the claims process, uh, the intro claims process. Uh, it was John and a, a lady, Susan Osmansky, who was a volunteer with us, and also Hillary Escajeda, a board member. Um, mm-hmm. We basically came up with a negative consent uh, intro claim process, helped us get $4.2 billion out in about 10 weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Yeah. So where was that $4.2 billion? That was all in the bankruptcy estate, you know, and so you. If yeah, but how did it get to the bankruptcy estate? Uh, that was just question. assets that were on hand and MF Global. So got it, got uh, it, there got are it. a lot of similarities between FTX and MF Global in that you had major Democratic donors involved under the direct supervision of regulators run by Gary Gensler. He was then the chairman of the CFTC, now the chairman oh. of the uh, SEC both given lots of access to preferential access to regulators, um, you know, under Gensler's watch, right? And mm-hmm. because you had these massive donations to the president in power, the only organization in the U.S. that could bring federal criminal charges to the Department of Justice, right? So you have this massive conflict of interest and in that the attorney general was reported by the president, but then you're t- telling him, hey, charge this guy who's one of the president's biggest donors. Right. Mm-hmm. So you have that very same conflict of interest. But now in MF Global, you know, the whole bankruptcy estate at the holding company level was over 40 billion in assets. Mm-hmm. Um, we're getting about 6.7 billion owed to customers and a shortfall of 1.6 billion. Right. So we were able to basically put pressure on JP Morgan through the media. They closed, they, they closed my bank accounts and credit cards in retaliation, like what they did to Kanye. What? So you can really say that Kanye got Catullus because that happened to me 11 years ago, like my bank accounts being closed by JP Morgan. Um, but anyway, that the media excoriated them so violently for closing the pro bono lawyers, they got the credit cards, they want to write about a billion dollar check um, to make the customers whole, right? Mm-hmm. So customers on Global actually got 101 cents on the dollar between uh, our bankruptcy efforts and then they got like one penny out of the, the class action. So okay. um, FTX, I think it's going to be a lot harder. You know, it looks like Bankman Freed may have 3.4 billion of the 8 billion in customer money personally, right? So it's finding mm-hmm. that where it's been hidden and selling assets. How much of that's in privacy coins, mm-hmm. for example, right? Like where is it hiding and, you know, what pressure are they going to put to get them back? And also, you know, it's a lot easier to sue a multi trillion dollar bank than, you know, random like crypto people, right? So mm-hmm. it remains to be see who is, who's involved. But you know, to me, the number one thing we got to do if we don't want like the Bahamas is calling for criminal charges on him already. You know, like mm-hmm. a little island tax haven, you know, to go like shark fishing and stuff, right? Shark yeah. diving, right? Well, we're the United States of America. We're supposedly the the Cadillac of the world's you know financial system. Where's the call for criminal charges? And you know that that's what I got to see. If you want to believe so here's the financial my question. Where, where, where is the 
call for criminal charges. Are there is you mentioned that there are criminal charges being filed in the Bahamas right now? Has he been so incarcerated? The Bahamas regulators have talked about it. I don't, I don't believe there's been a formal warrant. Um, mm-hmm. He is not incarcerated as far as I know. And you got to ask why. OK, yeah. why is he not incarcerated? Why is there not a U.S. arrest warrant? You know, like in MF Global, the FBI waited a year to interview Corzine with $1.6 billion of segregated customer funds missing. Right. And, just, later, and this is just, uh, uh, just to be clear, and I think a lot of people may not even recall. John Corzine was the governor of New Jersey. OK, this wasn't a guy for New Jersey, CEO yeah. Goldman Sachs. Yeah, this guy wasn't, you know, on the city council of like, uh, uh, on, you know, New Haven or something. OK, this guy was a major political figure, probably even considered running for president at one point. It was considered a prospect for uh, vice president. Um, but he he essentially, uh, am I correct in saying with MF Global, he essentially um, had margin calls on his personal accounts and took money from his business that were customer deposits and investor funds and transferred it to his personal balance sheet. That was pretty much it, right? Essentially. So it was the, he was trading in the firm's name, but it was the firm's trades. He was a major owner of the firm. So it's considered And that's illegal in the trading. first place, right? That's fundamentally uh, a lot. Uh, so some, propri- some proprietary trading is legal, right? It was a little murky in the futures world in that you were allowed to take your customer deposits and invest them in things like T-bills and whatnot. What he did was take the money, send it to London, lever it up 30 to 1, and traded like European sovereign debt. And then Mm -hmm. when he knew he was on margin call, he had the choice. He could have just reduced his exposure and taken a loss. But what Mm -hmm. he did was they actually had what's called a break the glass plan, where they planned to raid customer accounts to fund the firm's own liquidity. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then they falsified a segregation report. Um, to give him ostensibly pro- um, plausible deniability, saying that they had like 550 million of firm money in with the customer accounts, which was not true. They did a, just a manual adjustment to say mm-hmm. that. So they, they willfully submitted a fraudulent um, segregation report to the regulator, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, mm-hmm. um, and then wired the money out of the customer accounts. Wild, wild stuff. Yeah. So, um, do. The Madoff recovery and clawback, uh, that seems to have gone pretty well. I imagine you're pretty pretty up to date on that. Yeah, so it depends how, how you, whose perspective you look at that. So mm-hmm. almost all of the principal was returned to Madoff victims. However, mm-hmm. there's a lot of clawback of fictitious profits. So people, mm-hmm. you know, they might have had money with them for 20 years and thought they were compounding at 12% for 20 years mm-hmm. and then had to write a $100 million check, right? Yeah. So... Um, you know, it's another case of if it's too good to be true, it probably is, mm-hmm. right? And you know, you have people who are thinking, you know, you're gonna make one percent a month, like every month, with no risk for infinity, like yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so where did they find the Madoff money that they did get back? Well, so most of it came, but so one, Bernie didn't really spend much. Like it was kind of weird, right? Like he wasn't mm-hmm. out there buying like yachts and jets and. And stuff. So they got a lot back from his family, but then a lot was clawed back, um, you know, from other victims who had already like withdrawn. So there was a lot of like reshuffling it in attempts to get people's close back as close back to their principal as possible. So, okay, you know, so a lot investors, of hits were paid mm, by mm-hmm. people who had withdrawn fictitious gains, but then had to give that money back. Wow. So people through no fault of their own received money that was based on uh, illusory gains, um, thought they, you know, had had, had locked in 
let's call it a, a total, you know, 250% compound profit over the course of a decade or God knows what, and then had to end up giving quite a bit of that back to make other investors whole who hadn't, who, who had not withdrawn funds. Yeah, I would give them a little fault because I mean, like if anyone did real due diligence on Madoff and saw they had like a one man audit, you know, like I, number one thing to do due diligence, like trust the audit, right? Like, you know, FTX didn't use Deloitte or KPMG or Ersten Young or BDO, right? They used like some firm I've never heard of as like advertising like events with strippers. Okay, like don't don't put your money at thirty billion dollar firms that have like stripper events. I think that's Mm -hmm. like due diligence, like number one. Uh, I get it, but uh, but I mean, your the the fiduciary duty runs does not run in that direction, right? I mean, you know, by by all means, you should absolutely be in jail, absolutely. But just in general, like if people want to avoid scams, Mm -hmm. number one thing is like do some basic due diligence, right? Like you know, in FTX, you look at people who invested in like FTX the company rather than having like brokerage deposits with FDX, mm-hmm. right? So there should be much higher standards of due diligence for those people. Like people who, you know, put money at a brokerage firm where in writing it, you're told that your account should be segregated, I feel a lot less bad for them than professional investors who knew they didn't have a board, they didn't have a CFO, um, they didn't have a big six audit firm, you know, mm-hmm. let alone a big four audit firm, right? Um you know, the the amount of money this guy was throwing at politicians and bailing out like every single crypto company, you got to ask, like, where's all that money coming from? Right. So and like, bailouts, is it actually there? The bailout. So when when other, are you, is that essentially when other coins would plummet in in va- uh, in price and value, they'd come in to prop the market up? Yeah. Coins or, or exchanges or lenders like, you know, they made yeah. a lot of distress bets. You know, across the space, and you know, arena deals is like over 100 million bucks to put their name on, uh, you know, the Miami Heat arena. Which, by the way, mm-hmm. that's like one of the most, the, the one of the best, like Kramer esque indicators. Like, if you spend money to sponsor a sports arena, your stock's almost certainly going to go down. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so will Mickey Arison be getting a knock from investigators and uh, and uh, investor uh, advocate attorneys um, or bankruptcy trustees? coming to uh to not you know mickey Harrison's the owner of the miami heat and uh what was formerly american airlines arena that then became ftx arena um is that a potential clawback avenue so so they'll definitely get a call right you know a lot of mm-hmm. times in clawbacks it depends on you know the timing right like you know is it a fraudulent transfer or like you know good faith transfers are going 90 days you know so, some of the other standards could go back as far as two years um, you know, one thing the bankruptcy court might try to do is call Mickey and be like, hey, how much time is left on this lease? Can we sublease the naming rights to someone else and have that go back to the the, uh, the arena, right? You know, because mm-hmm. if there's time that they've already paid for, which I don't know, right? But just hypothetically, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the bankruptcy court, it, or, or well, here you, you have a kind of unique situation. There's not a trustee. There's a chief restructuring officer, this guy, Ray, who mm-hmm. also handled Enron. Um, but, you know, he, him and his staff are going to try to monetize every single asset possible to try to marshal those assets mm-hmm. into the estate for customers and other creditors. So, yeah, that, real quick, let's go into that. The current CEO of FTX was appointed by the courts, was an individual who served a similar function for Enron and essentially um, 
as the prior CEO has been deemed unfit to uh, responsibly uh, uh, handle and administer customer assets here. Uh, this gentleman has been placed there to do so. And essentially, he has to find as much value for investors as humanly possible. Yeah, exa exactly. And mm -hmm. then, you know, to, 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 for me, like he looks to be a very professional guy, right? I mean, his resume yeah. speaks to himself. But the big question is, is he going to touch that third rail? Is he going to call Joe Biden? I mean, like we yep. want that 50 million in campaign yeah. contributions back. Yeah. Um, like, for example, Senator uh, Gillibrand from New York said she received money from FTX. She's like, I'm donating it to charity. It's like, <laughs> hey, uh, this is your money to donate to charity and act like you're magnanimous, right? Like yeah. this is money that's the byproduct of fraud. Okay, yeah. whatever charity you want to give it to, you know what, maybe give it back to the to, to Ray so it could go back to the customers who were defrauded mm. here. Yeah, right. And, I mean, like that's just just mind numbingly like self centered, but like her charitable um inclination should trump the actual victims there. So this is the real salacious dynamic going on right now. In this case with FTX, because so many of the funds were ill-gotten Ill gains that were given then to politicians because uh, SBF was such a, a massive donor to these democratic causes, the, the lawmakers and those who were, you know, at least play some role in the, le the legislative or, or, you know, legal process uh, that are supposed to enforce uh, uh, customers' rights here were the recipients of the funds from FTX and ostensibly they should be looking to give back some of it. And is Joe Biden going to be looking to give back any of the 50 million that he got or any of the other politicians who got a ton of money from F uh, SBF or FTX sources? So that is a difficult dynamic and one that if it is not handled properly, will simply reinforce the notion that our government is irretrievably corrupt um, and uh, the smart money is on that being reinforced here. Um, an article that you tweeted out was from the Wall Street Journal, FTX collapses into bankruptcy system that still hasn't figured out crypto. And that's a good point in that we are, you know, it's kind of like with uh, with with laws, uh, speech and communication laws around Internet usage. And you go back and look at all these laws from the early 2000s uh, that are still governing Internet usage right now. Right. Because nobody's brought a seminal case in the courts to determine what the interpretation of those laws have been. Right. So similarly, OK, we're a few years into uh, widespread adoption or financial activity in the crypto space. But this is not, you know, well, and you've got a, you've had a couple crypto downturns, certainly. But the first that has been of the scale that will lead to widespread bankruptcies. So the bankruptcy system hasn't adjudicated these cases and um, and clarified processes and, and how, you know, funds. And as you mentioned uh, previously with with SBF and tracking down where his personal funds are, some of them might be in difficult to access cryptocurrencies. So, uh, yeah, if you could go into a little bit of what the challenges will be for the bankruptcy system on issues of um, of of you know on issues of kind of first reproach in figuring out how to handle such a bankruptcy. Yeah, it's going to be tricky. I mean, a couple of months ago, you had Celsius file bankruptcy, which is really kind of like the first big um, mm -hmm. U.S. crypto bankruptcy. So, uh, I assume that's going to move faster than the absolute mess that FTX is. Um, so you're going to see a lot of. Uh, I think precedent sent there. Ironically, the judge is Martin Glenn, who is the same judge as Emma Fobble, um, who's a pretty good judge. I mean, he's a smart, mm -hmm. smart guy. I, I, I consider him fair. Um, hilariously, a guy who is very, very much a Democrat and involved there actually mm -hmm. made a motion to Judge Glenn with my picture in it, asking that I be appointed <laughs> trustee of Celsius. So that actually gave me a little bit of faith that we're not completely partisan in this country, that people mm -hmm. you know, want to see someone who actually you know, cares involved in these cases. 
But um, one big difficulty with crypto just as a whole is that the SEC for years and years has taken this anti-crypto position that everything's illegal, everything's a security, right? They're suing Ripple, mm-hmm. they've denied a Bitcoin ETF, I don't know how many times out of the uh, under the guise of investor protection, but instead they just push people into to scams like FTX. Like, mm-hmm. does anyone on earth think that a spot Bitcoin ETF that was properly regulated would be, you know, more dangerous than a Bahamian, um, you know, morass of 130 unregulated or mostly unregulated entities? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so so I think that that everybody needs to start holding the SEC accountable. Um, and what they've done to expose customers to fraud is infinitely worse by trying to stop crypto adoption or slow crypto adoption and taking this regulation by enforcement uh, philosophy mm-hmm. of just, you know, arbitrarily saying this is a security, this is a security, I'm going to sue you, you're going to pay a fine of like half a percent of what you raise in your ICO and, and think anything's going to going to happen because of that. And, you know, one of the things that has happened, because you haven't had a framework to have properly registered crypto security offerings, is that people, the leaders of the crypto space are people who willfully flouted the securities laws that are on the books, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So, so, you know, you have a lot of bad guys in crypto. And while the protocols are extremely secure, like Bitcoin, as far as I know, no one has ever changed a single transaction in Bitcoin because it's a decentralized protocol where every transaction has got to be uh, verified by over a thousand computers that uh, they would all have to be hacked in unison. Mm-hmm. Where all these frauds happen are where the decentralized protocols become re-centralized through an exchange where now you have a single point of failure. And now you've got this guy, SBF, with his you know, alleged backdoor into their proprietary trading company um, who could just go and yank billions of dollars with, with no oversight or governance. And that's, yeah. you, you could place the blame of that squarely at the SEC for allowing those. And I know we're going to get speculative here, but some people can, some people postulating that the FTX fiasco was somehow engineered and the government did play some guiding role in that because they wanted to use this as the impetus to further regulate crypto or or drive adoption or drive interest towards a government issued digital currency. What are your thoughts there? Well, so the government definitely wants to have their own currency. I mean, the Treasury Department reached out to me personally in 2017 to discuss stable coins. They, you know, I, I would assume that they you know, was on their radar long before that. Um, personally, I, I think that gives the government a little too, too much credit thinking that like Same they want to crash FTX because the amount of collateral damage to the administration here is huge, right? Because of the donations and all of that. Um, So I think, you know, perhaps maybe they were able to help prop it up through the midterms. I think if this would have collapsed a week before the midterms, um, you know, that, that would be a scandal where, you know, they, they risk being held accountable at the voting Mm -hmm. booth. I think it's going to be hard, um, you know, for democratic voters to be upset enough about this that they're still going to make this a main voting issue in two years mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right so the, the timing right after the midterms is definitely convenient for the government but i mean the government that means that they want a central bank digital currency which i have said time and time again um is the path to authoritarianism right if you look at china and their social credit system and you look at what um the u.s has tried to do under biden with 
uh, jab mandates and you know censorship through big tech platforms, uh, a centralized government-run digital currency where you could have automatic taxation on the blockchain, or you know what PayPal just just got caught trying to do right. If you tweet misinformation, we're just going to take twenty five hundred bucks out of your PayPal account that's yeah, linked to your bank account. You're yep, going to let the government yep. do that. You do anything that the, uh, um, you know, the government doesn't like, they're just going to freeze your assets, which by the way, Trudeau just did in Canada. And mm-hmm. you know, like about a year ago, anyone who donated to the freedom convoy um, had their, their bank accounts frozen. And those donations yeah. were then given to black lives matter. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, like you can't even make this stuff up. And uh, so, Going back to the the trail of the money here with FTX, um, you can go try to track down whatever you know is currently held in accounts that that are tied to Sam Bankman Fried. But I mean, they gave away a lot of money. They made a lot of venture investments. I mean, just massive ones. Uh, and if you're the recipient of if if uh, Alameda's on your cap table, um, is that a place that they can go about? You know, Alameda gave XYZ fund a hundred million dollars. That you know, to the extent that that was spent or not. Sp- Let's say that 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 was spent, right? That um, uh, Alameda participated in a recent round for a startup. That startup went and deployed a bunch of those funds. The uh, bankruptcy courts or the trustee comes knocking on that fund's door. What what happens? A lot of it's going to depend on two things: you have the timing and when they knew, right? Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, a lot of cases, 90 days, um, you know, is the limit, but there, you know, there, there are instances where the bankruptcy court could go back up to two years and FTX has done a lot in the last two years. Um, and given the sorry state of the bankruptcy estate where, you know, they're showing maybe 700 million in cash between entities that were supposedly worth 30 billion. Um, I, I feel that, you know, Ray is going to have to be ultra aggressive and looking at all of these recipients of, of FTX money. What, what's your outlook from here on, in the regulatory environment in terms of making sure that this doesn't happen again? Um, it seems, do you think Gensler is acting more quickly or slower than you're anticipating in trying to roll out some crypto regulations under the Biden, Biden administration? Well, so actually there was an article, I think in the journal a couple of weeks ago, about basically everyone is pissed at Gensler at, you know, overdoing it and having like too much, you know, too fast. And, you know, a lot of his regulations are just like misguided, right? Like what people want to see is a framework for having a publicly registered security token. Okay. So for for years, you know, back to 1940, if crypto existed back then, on the 1940 Securities Act, you know, there is a pathway for having a valid, at least exempt security offering, right? If you um, limit it to, to only accredited investors and you do, you know, know your customer diligence on them and, you know, verify, uh, they're over a 2 million liquid net worth and that you don't allow those issued security tokens to be transferred for over 12 months and that any subsequent tra- transfers are also accredited. That exists. That one's difficult. It's a pain in the ass. You know, if you have one person lying in your KYC, you've seen some, some, you know, judicial decisions where, the issuer has been held liable, even though the customer lied, right? About like if they're mm-hmm. American or not, what their net worth is. Um, you know, so it's it's legal, but it's to a very small audience and and you know, a lot of repercussions, even if you know someone lies, right? So what mm-hmm. people want to see is how do you have a valid publicly registered security? Like what does the compliance look like? Do you have 
you know, compliance foundation um, that is, you know, making the, you know, updated disclosures and, you know, updating that, like, you know, it's, it's hard to reconcile these concepts of, you know, decentralized offering with compliance obligations that are all originate from an issuer, right? Mm-hmm. So, and then there's also a big turf battle between the CFTC and the SEC, where, you know, the CFTC is in charge of listed derivatives. Under Dodd-Frank, they became in charge of swaps. Um, and then Bitcoin was classified as a commodity. So, like, Bitcoin falls under the CFTC as do futures on Bitcoin and Ethereum. But anything mm-hmm. that's a security then goes under the SEC. So, you know, you have this like kind of middle ground where, um, you know, for example, like someone made a, a token based on my Halloween costume last year, let's go Brandon coin, right? That was for charity, pro free speech, limited supply, no functionality, you know, not a security. But the SEC might try to say, well, it is a security, right? So you have this, mm-hmm. this, this turf battle um where the regulators you know they they all want as big of a jurisdiction as possible because then they get the most budget and the most power and most influence mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah it is a tangled web no doubt um james anything else that you think that we should be on the lookout or in understanding where this ftx situation is going and, and what the fallout would be you know what what your your average not quite as involved as you investor or or observer should be looking for over the next few months yeah i mean uh troll is the um the bankruptcy like claims processing agent so they've made the docket public um you know so i would follow that there's a ton of filings and they will all put you to sleep because they're like you know they're super boring <laughs> but you know it's important to stay on top of that um you know customers can contact me at katulaslaw.com i am getting a lot of calls to to get involved and potentially start a customer committee um in the bankruptcy court um so i'm, I'm looking at potentially doing that to see where i can help i mean i think the number one thing that i can add as a you know value add is to stay on Ray and say, I want to see clawbacks against these politicians, right? Because that's mm-hmm. the third whale yeah. rail, and it's not going to happen without an immense amount of pressure, yeah. um, is my feeling. And then the other thing is stay on whoever your congressman, like, you know, reps and senators. Every one of them has a person dedicated to answer phone calls and to check social media. Okay, so it's it's much like the Epstein client list, which we still haven't seen, which is an abomination, right? But like sure. people need to not forget and hold people accountable and tell them, you know, if you don't release the Epstein client list or you don't give back these donations, I'm going to vote against you and I'm going to lobby everybody else to vote against you. Because at the end of the day, that's all anybody in Washington cares about is staying in power. And, you know, if you don't tell them that you are going to hold them accountable and campaign against them, um, they are not going to give this money back. No doubt, got to keep a watchful eye with the uh, with the intertwined political and financial shenanigans that are, are evident are evidenced by the FTX situation. One that you know every it's not just something for financial news junkies and uh, true crime aficionados. It's something that every voting citizen should be aware of and be actively monitoring. Um, James, this was fantastic and gave us some Im- immense insight into this process and and what we can look uh, what you know what the outlook is from here. Um, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you? Uh, yeah. So for, for anything FTX, uh, easiest on, on my law firm's website, Catulus, uh, K-O-U, T-S-M, Tom, O-U, L-A-S, uh, law.com. And there's there's a contact form on that. And uh, uh, I'm co-counseling with some of the best lawyers in, in the country to you know, see what we could do to help there. 
Fantastic. Well, your efforts are much appreciated. Thanks once again for joining us, ladies and gentlemen. This was The Prevailing Narrative. And we'll have more of The Prevailing Narrative after the break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. So as we've documented here before, a very underwhelming performance by the Republicans uh, uh, in the 2020 midterm elections. But the reality is they took the House of Representatives and a reality stemming from that is that they get to run investigations now. And one of the investigations they are putting to the forefront is that of the Hunter Biden laptop and the coordinated media attempt to label it or suggest that it was Russian misinformation or disinformation, like anybody knows the difference between those two at this point. Um, And so that is now coming to the forefront of the conversation. Once again, and even more so because uh, uh, over two years later, a couple of the news organizations that were insistent that this was a non-story and this was uh, an untrustworthy source claiming that Hunter Biden's uh, laptop showed anything relevant to the political process of the 2020 election. CBS comes out with a story the other day, copy of what's believed to be Hunter Biden's laptop data turned over by repair shop to FBI showed no tampering analysis says. Okay, so they're finally two years later acknowledging that it was all real and even more so that they had no reason to believe it was not real in the first place. So the uh, the organization from which that laptop and the surrounding story emanated was the New York Post. And here with us today is John Levine of the New York Post and who hopefully can give us a little bit uh, more color and inside peek into, you know, the circumstances surrounding the the media's attempt to uh, to oppose the New York Post's reporting at such time that they now seem to be retracting two years later. John, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Matt, on the prevailing narrative, the good old prevailing narrative. Uh, So, John, to the extent you can spill any tea or give us any uh, peek inside as to what was going on with The New York Post after it released this story, where essentially the rest of the media and all social media uh, apparatus and the intelligence agencies seem to uh, take a coordinated effort to taint uh, your report, taint the reporting of the post, right. censor it, suspended the Twitter account, um, and it was uh, under no pretense whatsoever that that it is now being revealed it was all under false I mean, pretenses. You're asking me to reminisce about the old days. I remember, you know, this this laptop came to us 
from Rudy Giuliani and Steve Bannon. So mm-hmm. obviously there was a lot of justifiable skepticism when this thing first emerged and as there was in, in this newsroom, because obviously mm-hmm. it needed to be vetted, it needed to be examined. Um, and we did examine it. And and we we found with very high confidence that it was authentic. And, mm-hmm. you know, obviously we published our string of stories about it. Um, and then we saw, I mean, they. I remember when they were going around on Twitter and I saw journalists like Maggie Haberman and Jake Sherman sharing them. And, mm-hmm. and they, it was getting a lot of traction until Twitter pulled the plug. Mm-hmm. There mm-hmm. was there was discussion about the story, but then very quickly the story mutated into the the other story, and I think mm-hmm. in some ways even an equally big story, which was social media censorship and how oh, oh many many times uh, more uh, exponentially larger that right and what an example a case study of how a coordinated media and corporate apparatus can be utilized or set into motion to go and, and essentially shelve an otherwise important story like that right and it wasn't just twitter i mean facebook didn't ban the story outright but they down reached it they made it they lowered it in the oh, algorithm oh, but you know I, I don't know if you're aware of this but this was something that was personal to me because it was the, under the, the pretenses under which my instagram account got banned one week before the election i didn't oh, even yeah. post anything about the story all i posted was a a uh, a cropped photo of hunter biden from one of the videos it wasn't even anything salacious i won't even get right. into what it was commentating on okay then um someone from facebook after i go to twitter to mention that my instagram account's been taken down someone uh, one of my followers mentions that he's in it executive at Facebook and uh, hey, I'll help you get my your account back. He helped me get my account back. I then, you know, just started discussing the issue with this uh, individual. And he very readily admitted that the that Facebook turned up, turned up the, the censorship algorithms to, to 20. Right. Fine. And that they were nuking so many accounts that there was almost an internal mutiny at Facebook and Instagram because so many of the employees at Facebook and Instagram were getting incoming calls from people they knew whose accounts were getting nuked that week. Like Fine. insanity. You, we, we, you know, certain people, mostly on the left, will always talk about the threat to democracy, and you know, one side is a threat to democracy. But what we saw in 2020 was basically a political party in in cahoots with the social media companies that really control free speech and the public square in our country, basically mm-hmm. collude to shut down the marketplace of ideas and to pull the plug on what Americans can see and what Americans can think. And they often use words like misinformation, disinformation, but th- it's not about that. This It's about political power and control and controlling the message. And, you know, look, misinformation is real. And if like a Russian bot wants to buy a fake, I don't know, you know, it's some Facebook ads. It's real. It's I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but it it's almost like the cure is worse than the disease yep, when you try yep. to shut di- when you start actively trying to shut down what you think is misinformation and disinformation mm-hmm. you're, you're going into a dark place and certainly i don't want politics i don't want the government to be deciding what's misinformation because then you're really in orwell territory well and then in in this case it is private companies doing things at the behest of the government which mark zuckerberg admitted outright that you know he tried to he tried to find cover so after the election after joe biden is safely uh inaugurated in the white house these companies start to kind of cover their tracks and and look for plausible deniability uh, to to justify what they did zuckerberg very casually on joe rogan says yeah the fbi mentioned that this might be you know we needed to be on the lookout for russian disinformation and then you think well okay was their decision on the hunter biden laptop what made one in good faith 
And two, based on any, you know, if we want to use a term from the legal world, any notion of probable cause. Did they have any probable cause to believe that this was fake or right. uh, or, you know, uh, something that that emanated from the Russians? And as it should have been apparent to anybody at the time and as has been revealed since then, there was no probable cause. There was no reason for them to question the validity of this laptop or the story whatsoever. Now, what you are mentioning about the FBI gets you into a very dark place because Correct. the FBI and the intelligence agencies, let's let's like rewind a little bit. Joe Biden is vice president from 2008 to 2016. At that time, his son is running all these schemes in China, Ukraine and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. You think that the intelligence agencies weren't completely aware of what Hunter yep. Biden was up to? Yeah, you, you, you don't. You, I mean, the son of the vice president is running is running these these business arrangements in these very shady countries with these very shady figures who are looking to penetrate the United States. The intelligence agencies knew exactly what Hunter mm -hmm. was doing years ago. So for and the, and furthermore, it's very, very hard for me. They, they knew about the laptop. They had access yeah. to the laptop in 2019 because yeah. the, the the computer repair guy gave it to the FBI. Mm -hmm. So when they went to Facebook and said, you know, there's going to be some Russian misinformation. They knew that you know they're talking about the laptop and they're talking about something they knew was real. So mm -hmm. they deliberately misled Facebook about that. And I mean, there's just no way the intelligence agencies didn't know the extent of what Hunter was up to. And they deliberately lied to the American people and misled the American people by calling it Russian misinformation. And we I think it's quite obvious the, the goal was to sway the 2020 election because defeating Trump was more important for these people than the values that they have, you know, sworn to uphold. Those all went out the window. Yeah. And everyone's wondering, well, what could be the fallout from this? What's what's really the the harm that comes from this? I mean, you need to have a citizenry that has some degree of confidence and trust um, and respect for for the, the institutions running the nation. And I mean, the, the media is that powerful and, and uh, you know, and has that trust in right. its uh, its intelligence services. And how, how's anyone supposed to how's anyone who is awake or conscious to this story supposed to trust the American institutions anymore after this? And this is why, while I find some conspiracy theory ty theorist types, particularly on the right, annoying and many times lazy and not subjecting their conspiracy theories to any scrutiny. I can't really blame them. And and where does the problem really emanate from? Does it emanate with the conspiracy theorists or with those who hold institutional powers who are giving people every reason to right. be suspicious? So yeah. let's get to the substance of the contents on the laptop and why it, it, the problem here isn't just the censorship. It's that the the contents of the laptop laptop cast doubt on joe biden's fitness uh, uh right. as a politician and as the president of the united states of america because here's the thing i mean all these business deals that hunter biden was involved in down to emails that he sent had recipients on the other end there are other people involved here so the idea that it was difficult to verify or validate this it was not it was not difficult at all you know for instance one uh, individual and whose name pops up here in la quite often a guy named tony bobolinsky no uh, no relation here but apparently, yes, believe it or not, one of Hunter Biden's business associates was Tony Bobolinsky. And believe it or not, in the mid 2010s, uh, he was buying lots of tables at clubs in L.A. So know a few people who are uh, uh, familiar with Tony and Tony validated all of this. And if you were wondering whether an email that showed on Hunter Biden's laptop that it was sent from Hunter Biden's laptop, whether or not that was authentic, all you had to do was go to Tony, Tony Bobolinsky's email account and see if the same email ended up in, as received on Tony Bobolinsky's email account. And they could have done that a lot of times. So one thing, for instance, 
Tony received an email where Hunter Biden, in mentioning some of the compensation he's going to get for one of these deals, mentions that 10% will be held by Hunter for the big guy. And according to Tony Bobolinsky, the the big guy is his father, the vice president at the time, and now the president of the United States, Joe Biden. And and that seems to be something that's relevant to his fitness as a, as the president of the United States, would it not? This is not an investigation of Hunter Biden. That's the key thing I want everyone yep. to understand. Hunter Biden did, did was a drug addict, and he did probably some very illegal stuff, potentially money laundering, potentially violating Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, Foreign Agent Registration Act. There's a lot of potential crimes he committed, but ultimately, this is not about the crimes Hunter committed. This is about Joe Biden, and this is about the extent to which Joe Biden was involved in his son's overseas business dealings, in his son's criminal behavior, and yep. the extent to which that involvement now compromises him as president of the United States. That is the brass tax. Everything else, just noise. That's yeah. the key thing. Yeah. Do you think that these investigations are going to lead anywhere? Well, first thing I'll say is um, they're not going to go anywhere in the Senate because the Senate is going to stay Democrat. So yeah. you can you, you can shut down the Senate as any avenue. But the House has flipped. So what's going to happen in the House is the House Oversight Committee is going to be led by this uh, guy named James Comer, a gregarious Kentuckian. Mm-hmm. Great accent. You know, he represents the bourbon trail. Uh-huh. And he is said that he's going to focus first and foremost on these things called SARs. They're suspicious activity reports. So if you were to just drop 50,000 bucks in your JP Morgan Chase account, the bank would generate something called a suspicious activity report because you'd go over a certain threshold and they have to generate these by law. This is a post 9-11 law and it's designed to stop uh, money laundering. It's designed to stop, you know, basically, you know, if you have suspicious activity that that is indicated by the cash you're moving in and out of the account. Now, most people go through their lives without generating any suspicious activity reports. I bet you don't have any. Um, it's it's not a crime to have one generated. It just sure. means something happened here that's a little weird. But Hunter has 150. Hunter and James <laughs> Biden, his uncle, the two of them together have 150. Um, that's yeah. really weird. Like, yeah. that's a really bizarre number. And the Republicans, when they were in the minority, asked the Treasury Department to hand them over. They wouldn't do so. Um, which is a change of past practice. It used to be anyone could request, any member of Congress could request these. Now they say only you have to be in the majority party, but now they are Mm -hmm. in the majority party. So they are going to get access to these. And I'm very, very curious what's in these suspicious activity reports. And I think we're going to learn a lot about, about the money trail and, and where it was coming from and who was paying. And it's, it's questions the white house is currently totally refused to answer or shine any light on. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's another uh, Joe Biden's brother's name is James, correct? James Biden, Hunter's uncle, a very oddly it's been oddly quiet about James Biden, because if you go look at any and this is not stuff that's hard to dig up. If you go look into anything, any information around James Biden and his business dealings, I mean, they start to look a lot like Hunter's just from another era. And over the course of, of a number more, I think James Biden got a bunch of contracts in Iraq. I mean, James, James, Joe Biden's brother made an insane amount of money uh, uh, paid of tax dollars uh, for government contracts uh, within the scope of the Iraq war. And pretty much all of his business dealings have had some government valence. And um, I mean, I I don't think it's too far-fetched to say that the guy has built a complete empire simply off the fact that his brother was a well-connected politician. Yeah. I mean, both of these guys um, have had a long history of trading off their name. 
which, yeah. you know, you know, relatives of presidents sometimes do that. You know, sure. it's, it's unfortunate, but it's part of our country. The question is, Joe said on the campaign trail repeatedly and since he's been in the White House repeatedly, I've never had any involvement in my son's overseas business dealings. That's been the line. Yeah. And that's that's a necessary line, because if Joe was involved, it, it gets him all, you know, uh, associated in, in the muck. Mm-hmm. He's always said there's been a wall. But the fact of the matter is, there's there's an enormous body of evidence now to show that's not true. We knew we knew before the election that there's photos on the hard drive of him mm-hmm. meeting with Hunter's business partners. There's you've got pictures of Hunter and Joe with Chinese business partners, with Mexican business partners, with Kazakhstani business partners. Oh, yeah. They're meeting. You had um, Joe uh, Hunter Biden's the the president of Hunter Biden's investment fund, a man named Eric Schwerin met with people in the White House 15 times or, mm-hmm. or more, more than 15 times. Um, Is Eric Schwerin related to Ben Schwerin? No idea. Okay, because Ben Schwerin's a guy heavy in the Clinton world. Okay. Yeah. Ben Ben Schwerin was a guy, yeah, who was when uh, someone to a guy named Michael Kibis, who I mentioned on on last week's episode, who had some, you know, tenuous relation to the FTX thing. Um, There was this group of people who were kind of had one foot in Hollywood, one foot in the political world. And during that period in the 2000s, when when before Hillary, uh, uh, before Hillary ran for president and the Clinton stars shined pretty bright, were involved in the Clinton world, were definitely benefiting from their association with Clinton. And I think Schwerin ended up getting a big position at Snapchat and et cetera, et cetera. I would not be shocked at all if Eric and Ben uh, were related. And I think also, I mean, it's interesting to postulate on what the impact would be here. But I mean, it's Joe Biden does project himself. He portrays himself as uh, a man of the people, uh, still someone who can relate to blue collar working class voters and and at at his core, uh, a Western uh, Pennsylvania, you know, blue or Delaware, where Delaware meets Western Pennsylvania, blue collar type. And I think that he's done an incredible job at building an image that just completely diverges from from any of the stuff that goes on beyond behind closed doors. It's like the Clintons, everyone just assumed, all right, they're kind of they're kind of slimy. We get it, but they're charming, smart, and uh, and fit the the bill enough that we're going to, for lack of a better term, we're we're going to excuse a lot of of their antics. But Joe Biden and his ascension and his entire career was never tainted by that for some very odd reason. And yet, I mean, if you look under under the hood here, it's fucking dirty. And I would just again zoom out a little bit. Hunter Biden is a drug addict. I don't know if you've read his memoir. It's a good memoir. It mm-hmm. tells a lot about his life you know, as an addict. And he was sniffing Parmesan cheese off the floor because he thought it was cocaine. <laughs> that's that's where he was at. And it's really dark, some of the stuff mm-hmm. in that memoir. And yet at the same time of the uh, these events and at the same time of this level of addiction, he's in Russia. He's in China. He's meeting with billionaires. He's meeting yeah. with the heads of major state companies. And you have to, there's that in your mind, you're thinking, what the hell is going on here? Yeah. Why do all of these people want to hang out with Hunter Biden? Yeah. What? Are, this he's a literal crack addict yeah and and then it's like oh okay they have another agenda in 2018 the new york times even wrote that the mm-hmm. chinese were looking to infiltrate powerful families mm-hmm. and and had and included the bidens in that article through hunter and there's a famous voicemail on the hard drive of joe saying to hunter i read the article i think you're in the clear so clearly <laughs> they talked about it but they were using Hunter as an instrument to get to Joe Biden and to mm-hmm. influence U.S. policy. And it remains to be seen 
whether that happened. And it remains to be seen whether that makes the president today compromised in some way by these foreign interests. So it's very, very, very important. That we get so and, and here I, I can't say that I've made the direct connection. But yes, a lot of the these shady business dealings uh, are have to do, uh, obviously, the relation to the situation in the Ukraine. And in uh, and, and this case where you've got the Biden administration um, with uh, without hesitation, unquestionably, essentially, you know, deciding that the Ukraine Russia conflict is going to be a proxy war between the U.S. and Russia. And some people are sitting here around, sitting around here scratching their head, wondering, well, OK, you know, certainly I'm supportive of the Ukraine. I think Putin, this is a war of aggression, discretionarily initiated by Vladimir Putin. I don't support that. But why is the Biden administration so insistent on on making this a proxy war? I mean, it seems like this is the type of thing that people should be should be investigating. Like if there's a motive that lines up there with some of these right. business dealings in that part of the world. Right. Strange. And, you know, I'll remind you, we spent three years on an investigation of something called the Steele dossier, which was this like phony baloney set of accusations that Trump like was 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 pissed on by prostitutes in Russia. And then Putin had a tape and it was blackmail. It was all yeah. bull. it was all bullshit. Yeah. It was three years of bullshit and vice and everyone was going on this. Everyone had a smoking gun. There was always a shoe that was about to drop. Yeah. Vice media had a whole series with Tom Arnold called like oh the search God. for the P tape. Don't Google it. And <laughs> it was it was three years of news stories, breathless news coverage, Rachel Maddow meltdowns every single mm -hmm. night on a lie. So now we have the hard drive is real. The yeah. emails are real. I call yeah. up a phone number in the hard drive, billionaire, member of Congress, and they always pick up. It's real stuff. There's yeah. never been an instance in the hard drive where something didn't match up. Yeah. You have a real primary source document with evidence of potentially really serious crimes. And, and, and the same people that talked about Trump being compromised, they don't want to talk about this now. They don't, yeah. they, this is all head in the it's sand. It's almost it's a complete inversion of where the right. suspicion should lie and where people should be suspicious of where people where right. are the president may be compromised and not acting in the country's interest. Right. And man, I mean, it's tough. You know, you, you start uh, uh, obviously the myriad of reasons not to be sympathetic to Trump or his supporters. And then you see something like this and I'm like, no wonder they don't give a shit. Right. No wonder they want to burn it all down and don't trust anybody. Can't blame right. them. And you can't. I'm not saying the president is compromised because I'm just saying we don't know enough yet. But, but we certainly, in terms of going back to probable cause, we certainly have probable cause to investigate further. Right, right, right. There's, we're well beyond the point of probable cause because we've established that Joe did have involvement in the business. So was this tangential involvement or was it something more significant? And mm -hmm. that remains to be seen. Yep. Yeah. All right. We'll see if anything comes of it. I think that the Republicans, much like uh, the, the current House uh, Republicans, need to do a better job in media and in framing what this investigation is about, because it's such a bad job that Trump did, because it just looked like he was right. trying to abuse some the his opponent's junkie kid. He never he, he never championed the idea that this was uh, this was indicative of corruption on Joe Biden's right, part. Right, it just right. looked like it was totally gratuitous. So hopefully the congressional Republicans uh, are smarter strategically and yeah. tactically than Donald Trump. The bar is not set high. Yeah. I mean, one one just totally to theorize, but would love love your thoughts on this because uh, it's what hit me uh, at the time. Um, the I think part of the reason that Trump lost in 2020 is because he didn't realize he, he did not, you know, uh, acclimate to the rules of the game that it was voting month, not voting day. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of mail in voting and early voting and that a quote unquote October surprise 
in the 2020 election is meaningless because it needed to be an August surprise. Okay. Because he needed to get that story out earlier. And what do you think that it was a complete utter brain fart and not surprising because Bannon and Rudy are, you know, old washed up boomer types that they thought that they didn't realize to release this earlier and give it more runway. I, I don't, I think you're giving everyone too much credit. I think it was like an ad hoc. Everyone was seated the pants. Yeah. If you look at, if you, if you rewind on this, the computer repair guy gave a copy of the hard drive to the FBI in 2019. Mm-hmm. And he he thought this was going to be an internal FBI map. And mm-hmm. it was only when the FBI did nothing and, and he reaches out to members, Republican senators, mm-hmm. and they do nothing. They think he's like a nut that he's like watching Fox News and he God. sees Rudy Giuliani on television. Like, and it's like last resort desperation stuff gets it to Rudy's like lawyer oh and my it, God. it must have been like receiving one of these nigerian princess emails <laughs> hello i have a heart yeah. but you know maybe a certain kind of boomer would get that email and be like let me look into this whereas yeah. you might have deleted it and thank god he did because it was true and then rudy and, and by the way there was a concurrent effort to with tony bobolinsky to work with the wall street journal mm-hmm. to get mm-hmm. this story out in a totally other effort. And obviously the post beat the journal to the punch with ah. the hard drive. Um, and then the journal published something subsequently. But I think it was not, it, it, everyone was, I, I think from the, 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 the side that had the hard drive, it was very ad hoc. Mm-hmm. I, I would not say there was any kind of high organization happening there. <laughs> Got it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, well, uh, anything, y- y- another great allegory for our current idiocracy that this all goes back to some random computer. Well, it was in Delaware, right? It was some computer repair shop in Delaware. In God computer repair shop in Delaware. Yeah, that's what this all that's traces back started. to. And the president's junky, junky son uh, forgetting to like with all that stuff on the goddamn laptop. He didn't remember to go get the laptop. I mean, yeah. <sighs> God, Hunter Biden, where art thou? Well, uh, we will see if anything comes of this investigation. I still think a a, just a mark upon American society and the corporate media government apparatus that this that they lied to the American people like this. And I'm just still shocked that people so many people are okay with this, that even no matter where your political affiliations lie, that this doesn't bother you to say, wow, they really they're really willing to go to that length to lie to me. And that's how and the the American people and are that condescending. Um, But John wanted to thank you for joining us, as always, if you want to tell everybody where they can find you. You can find me on Twitter at Levine Jonathan. Fantastic. Let's all lean into Twitter right now. The obviously the uh, the the rumors of its death are quite premature. Elon fucking ramping up. So you know, find us there in a, what what are sure to be you know a number of provocative conversations. Um, John, thank you once again. Thank you for having me. I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. The Prevailing Narrative is a Cavalry Audio production produced by Brandon Morgan, executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Matt Belinsky. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org.
Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.